Hey, welcome to the Chess Experience. On this show, it's all about helping adult improvers. I want to make learning chess easier for you to navigate, and I also want you to have a more fun experience along the way. I'm your host, Daniel Lona, a fellow chess amateur. Let's get to it. This show is sponsored by Chess.com, the world's largest chess community. One of Chess.com's most popular features is called Game Review. This feature weaves together a lot of benefits in one post-game analysis. For example, you can see how accurately you played, whether you made any moves that were deemed brilliant or great, which makes me feel a lot better about my chess when I get one of those. And Game Review also offers a virtual coach that gives insights on every move. It'll also show you alternate lines that would have been better for you to help you understand how you can improve your game. So go on chess.com, play a game, and try out the game review. Welcome to this week's episode. Before diving into the introduction of the interview, I have some exciting news. About one year ago, I dreamed of creating a podcast and having an online membership that was connected to it, and that that membership would foster a great adult improver chess community. Well, after many months of working on it, it is here. The name of it is Chess Improver Monthly, and let me take a quick minute to tell you about it. It offers you three big benefits. The first, since I assume you dig this podcast, are several bonuses connected to it. There's exclusive interview content with my guests, the chance to submit questions of future guests, and you can even vote on topics and which guests you'd like to see on the show. Also, I want the membership to help you improve your chess, and so I'm also including in it a monthly group coaching call with a titled player who will help answer your questions. There will also be a lot of community involved in this membership, and so there will be video chats with me and other adult improvers as we talk about our chess journeys, and lots of great member discussions in the private forums. There's more features than I even want to take the time to discuss in this intro, so I created a detailed webpage that describes everything you get, and the link for it is in the show notes. It will also very soon be on my website, and I'll talk about it regularly on Twitter, so trust me, you won't have any trouble finding that page or the opportunity to join if you would like. And I would love to have you in the membership and part of this new positive, supportive community with lots of great coaching and, and bonus content from the podcast. And there's a reduced rate for the first 100 members. So that's also a benefit available right now. And yeah, its creation is a dream come true for me. And I hope to see you in there. Now, on to this episode. I'm excited to have back on the show one of my favorite chess coaches, national master Brian Tillis. We discuss some of the less obvious stuff that goes into being a better player, like having a why for your chess goals, how having a routine can trump motivation, asking whether your training is matching your goals, and basically a variety of topics related to mental strategies and training methods to improve your chess. Plus, Brian has some great tournament advice that we talk about towards the end. And because he's been on the show before, we skip his backstory this time and mostly just dive right in. Hope you enjoyed the interview. Hey, Brian, how are you? Happy to have you back on the show. I am doing very well and excited to be back. 
Great. Yeah. I've loved our first conversation that we had uh, maybe about six months ago or so. So uh, really excited to talk again on a different subject this time. But, uh, you know, before we get into the main topic of the episode today, I just kind of want to catch up on where you're at with your own journey in chess, because last time we talked, you mentioned that you were going for the FM title. So, uh, you know, in the in the six months since then, uh, any updates or any any news on how that's going? Definitely. And I, I will say life has a way of getting in the way of chess goals. And uh, <laughs> right. probably the the biggest stride I've had, uh, I went and assisted at the Charlotte Chess Center at one of their norm events. And being able to see a norm event firsthand and be in the room the entire time that was eye-opening for the type of preparation I need to do to be at that level. And overall, I, I really wanted to cover this topic because I, I feel that my mindset and goals were way off. And I was forcing myself to compete without proper preparation. And I'm hoping that my failures will be something that everyone can learn from. Mm, interesting. Yeah. So a couple things on that. Uh, one is, yeah, definitely weave into our discussion on this, your own experiences, because I think, I think people always uh, appreciate hearing from other people's chess journeys and, you know, the, the, the lessons learned, whether it's from something that they did well or didn't do well. Either way, I think it always engages people and um, is instructive. And the other thing I'm curious about is you said that the norm tournament that you went to was eye-opening. Can you give one or two examples of what you observed that gave you that reaction? I would say from my time in dabbling and playing poker, for instance, if you can't see the person at the table that's bad, you are the bad person. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's that, that's kind of a... A takeaway that if if you're not seeing errors from from players, they are much better than you. And uh, I would say that from where my rating currently is, it's pretty accurate to the others within the section. So I it it was eye opening in that sense that I have a lot of work to do in order to get to that level. I see. So during the tournament, you didn't really notice who is the worst the worst player or one of the weaker players or something along those lines. Is that right? I would say I was seeing some weaknesses in, in preparation and certain things, but overall, if there are 10 players in a group, uh, I would be in the bottom three would objectively at this time. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. But you've still been, you know, consistently working at it though. I mean, I know you mentioned that life is getting in the way a bit, so it sounds like maybe that's, that's been a hindrance in being as consistent yeah, as you want. You'd be be surprised. It's it's hard to motivation is, is has definitely been uh, a difficulty. And I'll say with chessable projects and assisting with the norm tournament, I had the the norm tournament, which you know that's roughly a week. And then as soon as I got back, I had to do the Olympiad course on chessable, and I was doing everything from research writing the tactics and then recording the video and having a narrative where I was having to investigate news stories. That was exhausting. And I was working on little sleep for the better part of two weeks there. So it's, it's hard to maintain focus and 
really work on your own game when you have the, those type of outside things and being on two nonprofit boards and being a workaholic definitely <laughs> distracts me. <laughs> yeah. So what's your next goal for yourself in you know what I assume is a long journey to get the FM title? Like what's the next mini goal or whatever you want to call it along the way for yourself? Establish a set routine and stick to it. I think that motivation will definitely come and go, but a routine that you can stick to that that's one of the major keys to success. Yeah, that's great. And I think uh, we'll be talking about that subject a little bit more uh, in this conversation of uh, having a routine. I just want to say, I think this is a really fascinating subject because one of the things that I've observed as I've been a, a host of this show now for uh, over six months and talking to lots of title players and people who are uh, light years ahead of me at chess is that there's there's just so much overlap between just how the journey feels or the types of challenges at least that you have whether you're an amateur or a title player going for that next title or uh, winning a championship there's just um, a lot of similarity in, in the emotions that we go through and like i said the categories of challenges even though the skill level is wildly different and so my point in all that is uh, i think hearing about your journey even though the vast majority of my audience isn't aiming for a title you can just still learn so much about what you're trying to accomplish so i appreciate that Oh, yeah. And I, I, I've been excited about this interview all week. <laughs> to, uh, <laughs> get some things off my chest. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. So let's dive into the main subject here, which is mindset as a chess improver. You know, I had a question for you to kick off that subject, but I think I know the answer to it already, which is like, what has gotten you into thinking about this topic lately, uh, such that you want to have it be a theme for the episode and creating content for your YouTube channel. But it sounds like it's your own experience with the FM title. And I, I have a lot of students and I've seen ebb and flow with improvement with students. And when, when I'm checking from my personal journey to theirs, you really need a, a process with making new plans and goals and self-evaluating on a regular basis. I mean, there's a ton of chess information to study, but what to study for personal improvement is something that's a bit elusive for the average improver. And reflecting on the fact that a lot of my issues in the last tournament that I played that I took seriously, which was Amateur Team South, I felt at the board, like I was trying to get out of the situation. There was a lot of anxiety. I hadn't played for a long time. It was a long time control. And I just needed a mindset check. And after that tournament, one of the things that I did was started studying players who have no quit in their game at all. Like uh, amazing players like Grandmaster Ulf Anderson. When you look at his games, it's, it's not a big focus on opening theory. He gets equal positions, and then he grinds for hours and hours and hours. No draws, no no quick and get out of their situations, but a focus on just I'm there to play. And uh, I think that's so important. Interesting. So when you said that you were looking to get out of it, did you mean just like uh, you weren't interested in the, the, the games overall, like the whole event in its entirety, or that you, you felt like you were – you know, repeatedly in situations over the board, <laughs> you just didn't want to play. 
Well, it, it was more in the sense that I think psychologically that killer mindset just was not there for me at all. Like I, mm. I was going through the motions of competition, but there was no heart behind my play or motivation. And it felt all wrong. Interesting. What do you think was the cause of that? It was definitely not having the proper preparation before the event and training properly because I, I have a, a big bullet point for myself that if your training is easier than the competition that you're preparing for, you've already failed in regards to your preparation. Okay. So for you, Brian, proper preparation then is just this, a critical component to bringing that heart and fight to the board at a tournament. Do you find that, because you coach a lot of students too, mm -hmm. do you find that's true across the board or do you feel like that's just more of a, a personal necessity? Oh no, I think it's across the board definitely because if you feel prepared, you are psychologically motivated to compete and you're in a better mindset to compete. And mm -hmm. I, I definitely tie it in with, with goal setting, which, which we're going to be uh, discussing soon. And to me, I, th I think players, they, they don't properly set goals and they don't work towards them properly in the sense that some people go, well, I want to be 1600. That's not a goal. That's a dream. The goal would be two weeks before the tournament. I know I have trouble sleeping. I need to get on a good sleep routine to make sure I'm at a hundred percent. I need to research the tournament area to make sure I'm going to have proper food and have time between rounds to get that. If not, I need to make extra arrangements. It's a lot of the off the board things that can really make a difference. Hmm. That's yeah, that's those are great insights. I like that. And then I just want to kind of come back to one other thing you said, which really perked my interest, which was that you started looking at the games of players that inspired you to bring that fight to the board. And you mentioned Ulf Anderson is one just because I love that idea of players who, who specialize in that. And uh, I could use inspiration on that myself. And I'm sure many other people listening could as well. Uh, who are some of the other players that you look to for that same kind of inspiration? A player that I've studied for uh, a long time, and it was definitely inspired by my master of the French defense course, is uh, Grandmaster Georg Meyer. Um, he he plays a lot of very solid and, in the opinion of many people, dry positions. But again, he has no quit in his play, and he plays forever and ever. And taking a look at his game, for instance, that he had with Magnus at the Olympiad, he at one point was much better. And but there was, I mean, it was roughly an 80 move game or so and just grind, 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 grind by both sides. And another player as well would be Grandmaster Keith Arkell. Um, all three of them, I feel, have a certain style and have zero quit in their game. They just fight so hard in every game that they play. Yeah, I really like this idea of like how you look to other players for inspiration of, you know, maybe closing a gap on what you felt you needed to do better at your own tournaments. But I think, you know, I think it goes beyond that where where we all need to bring that fight to the board. And I don't think you can be too inspired <laughs> to do that. In fact, I think often that's just a challenge for everybody. It seems to, you know, that they could probably always put in a little more fight especially throughout the duration of a tournament, which is challenging. So turning that into a, a question for you, which is, do you see that as looking to players who can give you that inspiration for bringing fight to the board? 
would you consider that maybe even a, a critical part of mental preparation for tournaments and just a person's own chess journey as they go forward? I think yes. It, and it, it ties in with that, that goal setting and proper preparation. For me, I knew something was missing in my play as soon as I was go as soon as round one was done, I felt like something was missing that I had 10 years ago and Mm. my why for playing chess. And I think all of us need to really define properly. What is your why for competing? My why for competing came from a completely different place 10 years ago when I was playing in Alabama and to now I was trying to define myself and become a master. And it was a constant climb and it's very demotivating now in comparison, say as a master, because the next step is playing norm tournaments and how much are you willing to sacrifice in order to get that next title? And when you're looking at three to $5,000 for every norm tournament you play in with no prizes, it's, it's really hard to justify and that's that's part of it as well. So I have to personally get to a place to where my why is it's stronger than anything else. And I'm processing playing tournaments as it's a holiday. It's something that financially I'm I'm putting up for. And that's, you know, it's a vacation, even though it's grueling and terribly hard work. You, you have to process it that way. Otherwise, I think it's devastating if you start having a bad event. And you're focusing on the finances and things of that nature. You've got to write it off as entertainment money, so to speak. Mm, interesting, interesting. Yeah, you know, I'm um, I'm big on uh, personal development, learning, and subjects related to that myself. So when you talk about having a why, like I instantly know what you're talking about. In fact, uh, oh man, I'm going to mess up the title of the book, but Simon Sinek has a book entitled, you know, basically exactly that, like finding your why. And um, so I'm familiar with it, but just for anyone. Uh, listening who may not have dived much into that concept of having a why, like how would you describe it, particularly in a chess context, or or, or maybe even not, uh, in having a why for a journey? I would say I'll, I'll often see the why defined by many of my students, especially the young ones, as I want to reach this level by this time period, or I'm seeking a, a scholarship, and in In myself personally, I I didn't start competing until 15. And I remember printing off the top 100 list in my home state of Alabama and basically constantly updating it as I was climbing the ladder. And my why was very goal-oriented that I wanted to climb up the list. I didn't have a, a destination in mind. It was just the journey itself was something that I very much enjoyed and was enamored by. I see. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's always like kind of that deeper meeting. It's not just like the next step Mm -hmm. in the journey. It's it's the it's the whole reason. Like maybe you're even on the journey in the first place, potentially. Uh, Yeah, this this discussion of having a why is really critical, and I think um, I think it's really important even for adult improvers, just because I think it helps people stay in the game, no pun intended. But, mm-hmm. you know, if, if you don't understand your own 
purpose for why you're playing chess and why you're putting in even even 10 hours a week, which is can be a, a, a sacrifice or you know a challenge for a lot of uh, adults to put in just 10 hours. I, I think they'll have trouble sticking with it for the long term. I think kind of to what you're saying, Brian, it needs to be more than just a rating goal yeah. as your big, big reason. Because like you said, just, just chasing 1600 or whatever, even just 1200 as an adult, I don't know that you'll be in it for the long haul because there's so many challenges within chess mm-hmm. and life, as you said, that, you know, if, if the biggest thing you can think of as to why you're doing it is just to get to, to a particular rating, uh, I think eventually you'll find your motivation and life getting in the way too much. So uh, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I'm inclined to agree because what, what motivated me when I was younger definitely isn't the same. And I, I had a constant need to prove myself, I felt like. I mean, Alabama's not exactly known for chess culture. And I was told constantly uh, or, or asked constantly, well, why are you doing this? It's, it's stressing you out and that type of thing. Or why don't you just quit? I got that question quite a lot, especially when. I was grinding to those last 100 points between 2100 and 2200. I would say are the most difficult to get, um, especially if you're in the South. Um, so my, my why now is, is something that, honestly, I am still struggling to define, which is why I think you've got to have that powerful motivation to put wind in your sails. And that's, yeah, and... It, it goes right along with motivation. And I think that if you set the routine and you're constantly following your routine, the motivation will get there as your confidence builds. So it's, it's all tied together. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Before we did this interview, you mentioned a subject that you wanted to bring up that I thought was fantastic because I love it from back in my um, coaching days in fitness and nutrition, a lesson that I had learned that I just take to everything, fitness, nutrition, chess, anything. Uh, when you're setting goals for yourself in an endeavor is was to ask the question, are your habits or your actions matching your goals because it's so easy to have such a, a big disparity. We can always dream so much bigger than sometimes our schedule allows or our, our, our willingness to sacrifice allows. And you brought up exactly this topic before our interview by uh, by saying, you know, you want to address the issue of is your training meeting your goals, which to me is, is the same thing. So my first question for you is just like, how did you become aware of this this important theme or, or subject? I'm not sure. I, I, I think a, a lot of what I've done is self-reflection and I, I can't put my finger or reflection from my students' journeys in order to try to help expedite the process for their improvement. You did say though that like in your recent journey for the FM title, that that started to become uh, something you were more, at least more aware of was you, you said in kind of looking at what you've done over the past several months that you didn't feel that your training was really sufficient to meet your goals. Do you want to just like comment on that in terms of, or let's start with maybe um, what was the gap? Like what did you need more of that you felt you weren't doing to meet your goals? I think a large percentage of it would be psychology of competition that I did not feel confident. And that confidence definitely stems from filling in gaps in play. And I, this, this definitely applies to everyone that, Chess has more books printed on it in a year than every other game combined. So there's a plethora of information out there, and it's very easy to get lost in, well, I picked up this book and I studied it. 
but how much of that book actually fills in gap in your play. A lot of players don't self-reflect on filling in those gaps. And I've lately been trying to really focus on filling in those gaps and studying the precise information that I need. Like if you're just openly studying tactics, well, how many of those tactics are going to stem from the openings and structures that you play? How many of those in games long-term, if you're preparing properly, it should be a fluid motion from opening all the way to ending. And that's, I mean, I'm speaking from a master level with that perspective, but just being aware of general tactical themes within your openings and general endings that can stem from your openings you want to prioritize your study to fill in gaps in your weaknesses. I, I very much see it like a, a UFC fighter who knows that he has uh, a weakness, say a cracked rib. You can go through the motions and do everything, but you're constantly having to protect that weakness. And a lot of players will get good at protecting their weakness instead of filling in the gap. Yeah, that's really fascinating what you said. So two things struck me. One is... Um, how you described doing tactics maybe in a way that doesn't serve you as best as it could. And that resonates with me because I've kind of felt that about uh, my own study over the past several months that I've been putting in the hours in a week that I should be putting in for tactics. But I started feeling like it wasn't improving my play anymore. Like these tactics weren't uh, the best puzzles I could maybe look at. They weren't bringing up themes that really showed up in my play. As you said, it's almost like you <laughs> you kind of looked into my own tactic study when you said that. And um, I think that's a really great way of talking about this subject of your training meeting your goals. Now, I'm, I'm sure like under 1200, you could probably just, you know, do any decent tactic book and, and it helps. But I think beyond that, what you're talking about really works for club players too, Brian, that you start to need to be a little more specific in how you how you study and how you improve to meet your goals. Cause I don't know that just, you know, once you get to a certain level, just blanket study of, Oh, I just studied end games. Anything in end games is fine. Uh, works much anymore. Uh, but I'm curious to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, I, I can expand with both say middle game slash tactics and within games. And with, with tactics, I would say I, I like the concept of the woodpecker method as an educator, but I feel that it's incomplete or limited, and I'll give give my perspective on it, that if you really want to get the most out of, say, doing the woodpecker method, I think first you need to use a system like chess.com has with their tactics, where they have all of these classifications and themes. So you do, say, a few thousand tactics. You can go back in and look at your statistics of where you're performing really well and where you're performing very poorly. Then at that point, I think the woodpecker method should be used for specific text to focus, to fill in gaps where you're not answering questions properly. And that's, that's one major point on tactical study with filling in gaps. But at the same time, you have to be aware that some tactical themes are just useless for you as a player. Say, for instance, if you're a London system Slav and Karl Kahn player, well, you're not going to have to know themes on F2 and F7 tactics early checkmate tactics like an E4, E5, or Sicilian player would. Those themes just, those tactical themes make up the majority of tactics E4 games do, but you don't really have to know any of those themes. So kind of cut them out and and specialize in the area that you need to. With in-games, I think that the approach of 
really following the statistics. Um, I've gotten the most personally out of studying Rook and Pawn in games and Rook and Minor Piece in games. So uh, same color bishop, opposite color bishop, knight versus bishop. Um, those those end games will teach you a lot of dynamics, which will help you with your decision making stemming from the opening. What trade should I be making in the middle game? You want to have the favorable minor piece in the ending and having that practical skill and technique to be able to think in the long term, what am I angling for? Those are great points. I love that. Um, because I think particularly like once, once you get to the intermediate level, this stuff really becomes very important in how how you study like i said i I, you know i think we're basically saying that uh, or you're basically saying that like just checking the box of a major category uh within chess isn't necessarily enough to have your training meet your goals that you have to be more specific than that and that you as you also said brian that you need to uh kind of identify your weak points or areas that are really important for you to hone in on uh within a subject of chess is that right oh definitely and uh I think that kind of stems from my experience in graduate school as well. The higher up you go, the more you, you specialize. And I think it's, it's very important to pick areas of specialization in chess. What we often see the, the top players, and they're just good at everything. But the amount of time and effort that it takes to do that, I would say, what to, to use the term average master, we don't even have the time to do that. You have to be obsessive about the game. So... Uh, a few of those players that I mentioned before, as those I was really studying for, for motivation, Ulf Anderson, Jorg Meyer, and Keith Arkell, all of them have very set opening repertoires that they play. And they're specialists in their openings. So they can really focus on honing the other parts of the game. So I think limiting part of that uh, is, is important with your study in some areas. Yeah. And there's just one other aspect of this that I'd like to discuss a little further because I, I think it's really important. The subject of your training meeting your goals, that's certainly, you know, we, we kind of covered the half of it in my mind that is about what you're studying specifically and what you're, what you're focusing on to get better. Um, but then there's also to me, everything that kind of surrounds that, as you were alluding to earlier, like your sleep, how you eat and things like that. And it's quite possible just that the habits that you have around your, your chess improvement um, practice may not be in line with supporting your goals. So I was wondering if you wanted to just comment at all about that in terms of the um, you know non-specific chess study items, like you said, uh, lifestyle yeah, or, I, or just hours put in. Yeah. Well, I remember years ago re- reading an article on, on chess base. Um, I believe Nigel Short was playing a tournament in Canada and was having just a dismal result. Um, dropping games game after game to players that were hundreds of feet a elo lower. And then upon investigation, he was having some major dental issues and wasn't able to make it to a dentist before being required to appear at the tournament. And I mean, imagine needing a root canal or something of that nature and then having to play a tournament. The, it's, it's bad enough, the anxiety that we have and the constant pressure that we're putting on ourselves to perform for hours when we're playing tournament games, but some outside force uh, from having relationship issues or family issues. These types of factors are deeply affecting decision making and, and focus. And one of uh, 
my friends and long-term on-again, off-again students, uh, National Master Mark Bernanke, he found that going pick up, playing pickup basketball before his games, doing something athletic, it was really, really helpful in keeping keeping him relaxed. You get that stress release, but before actually playing, you know, a game of chess for a number of hours. Hmm. That's interesting. Have you found anything like that that works for yourself? Uh, you know, like the getting in workouts or whatever before a tournament or things along those lines? Definitely. When, when I'm in the rhythm and everything's clicking, I'm typically getting up. And as soon as I wake up, I'm going for a, a run a couple of miles. And just if, if you're in your routine, you're in your element, nothing is really shaking you. That's, that's definitely something for me that is a huge confidence builder. So there's uh, another aspect of this that I wanted to talk about. I don't know how much of this is uh, exactly on the on the mental side per se, but um, it, it was related to um, uh, one of the things you wanted to bring up in this in this interview. In our previous episode together, you mentioned with respect to openings to. Uh, particularly for club players to try to keep it as fun fun as long as possible with their the openings they choose and and what they experience from them. So, how do you recommend balancing keeping the fun in this journey versus doing the necessary work to to ensure you're improving that we're kind of talking about today? How do you strike that balance, or at least from the perspective of club players, uh, what would you recommend? From a coach's perspective with working with my students, I'll allow them to pretty much play anything when they're below, say, 1,600. But when you start getting to around that rating level, I think a transition needs to start taking place. And you have to evaluate what time controls am I playing in. Because if you're, you're playing game in 60, game in 30, you can get away with a lot more than if you're playing in game in two hours. And just starting to make a slow but gradual transition. And you have to evaluate that if you're playing one tournament a month and you're preparing and you're working, but you're not seeing improvement after, say, six months, you need to reevaluate what you're doing and make changes. Because I, I often will find when I start working with chess players or setting improvement goals that I equate it to someone that goes to the gym and only works out their arms. <laughs> and that's, that's what their, their training and preparation looks like. I see. Yeah. That's a, that's a good analogy. So anything else in terms of like uh, balancing that, that they're including that fun aspect that I should mention outside of openings. Is there any element that, uh, that you could recommend. And I can give one example for myself, maybe to just uh, kind of illustrate what I'm talking about or maybe spark some ideas. So like I'm pretty disciplined in how I approach my own chess improvement uh, in terms of like spending time on the things my coaches say I should spend time on and, and uh, the things that I know, you know, uh, you know, based on consensus have the biggest impact for improvement. But sometimes I'm just not always up for it. Uh, and so I'll do just do almost anything else within chess, maybe 10, 15% of the time, just so that way uh, I don't kind of go crazy or I still kind of get in some chess work, even if it's 
not the most perfect thing for improvement uh, just to kind of keep my sanity because, you know, we all have like these intense lives outside of chess too. But that's just one example of kind of what I was thinking of. Right. Like, wondering if you had under, any other ideas along those lines. I would say mo- most people can put their finger on what they enjoy when they're studying chess and what they enjoy about studying chess. For me, it was always openings, which is why I'm now an opening specialist and have a number of texts. And I think the way I studied, it kind of stemmed from the opening. I'm going to study everything from that because I enjoy it from that perspective, from isolating tactics to study that stem from the opening to doing game analysis and analyzing all three parts of the game from the ground up approach. Um, I think trying to, if, if you're struggling with studying at all, or finding the motivation to study, try to make it fun in that sense. Find what you like to do and get get the ball rolling with studying something. And once you get going, then start branching out and trying to do some of that harder work that you don't enjoy. Yeah, that's a great that's a great thought. I love that because uh, like for me personally, I think my favorite study activity is to um, take out a uh, annotated game book and go through it over my really nice wooden set. Like it's just relaxing. I learn and all that. And, you know, sometimes I'm just not always up for an hour of tactics, but to your point, if, if I start with that, maybe, you know, maybe after that, now I'm willing to do tactics. It's kind of like it warms you up and makes you more, I don't know, amenable to do the hard work or something. Definitely. And and I equate it to if, if it's been a couple weeks and you haven't been going to the gym, you're dreading the idea of going back to the gym. But once you get in there and you get that workout done, you you have such a satisfying feeling afterwards. So I, I think it's it's definitely linked. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I love that analogy. I'm I'm you know me, I'm I'm all for any workout analogies because it's my wheelhouse. <laughs> um so yeah, I just want to move into some other subjects still under the category of chess improvement, but uh, not necessarily mindset related, just because you know you're you're very active right now in your own journey with tournaments and things like that. And you know, it's a uh, uh, something that you have like, you know, recent uh, examples from and things like that. Just want to talk about a couple of questions with tournament advice. One thing that you brought up that was of interest to you is the subject of uh, how long should you prepare for an event to be confident in your section? And uh, that's fascinating to me. I think it would be for a lot of people listening. So um, how would you uh, answer that question? For many, many years, and I would say this applies up to the 2200 level, you need to carve out two weeks before a tournament to get everything right from your sleeping habits, eating habits, and general study preparation for players who are registered for the event already. You need to have your mindset focused for those two weeks on competing in the event whenever you can. Um, I would say with Players above that level, two weeks is is not enough. It may be a month or two of impacted focus in order to prepare for, say, uh, the level of a norm tournament. I see. And so, is the preparation for an event that you're talking about? Let's let's do the the two week version because that's that's most of the audience would be in that category. Mm-hmm. Is that preparation mostly uh, a lifestyle preparation, or is there any chess specific elements to it in terms of study or play that you recommend as well? Now, 
I, th- I think definitely doing calculation training with studying tactics, maybe setting up a training match with someone in the strength of pretty close to the highest rated player that you could potentially face within your section for the tournament. Like I said, the training needs to be more difficult than the competition itself. So if you're, you got three games in a day and you're going to be playing for 12 hours, you need to set up some serious training sessions that are going to be 13, 14 hours to get your body prepared for it because it's going to be a shock and you're going to crash. And much like with, say, a a street fight, most of the time, if you can defend for 30 seconds, your uh, attacker is going to be so exhausted from lack of physical conditioning that they're not even going to be able to keep their hands up and defend themselves anymore. So having conditioning is so important for chess tournaments. And that's part of that two-week preparation process. Yeah, that's great advice. I love that. Also on the theme of tournaments, what's your plan, Brian, for yourself and for others to get yourself back on track if a tournament's going wrong, if you've had some losses early on, a heavy amount of losses early on? How do you deal with that? How do you manage it? Now, I there's been too many times that personally, you, you're just, for me, I can speak, I'm so motivated going into the event and then I have a bad game or two and I'm just bottomed out. I'm depressed and I'm emotionally stunted from my experience. You've got to have an external source of motivation to pick you up when things are going wrong. I have never been able to personally pull myself out of the pit. You've got to have that, that friend, that mentor, the coach, somebody to talk to that can help remind you of your why reason again and to get you focused and back on track. That's great advice. And I kind of just experienced that myself in my past tournament this weekend where it started really poorly. I started with two losses. I think it had been over a year since I went to a tournament where I started with two losses. So it had been like at least 10 tournaments since that had happened to me. Um, And then I had a draw as my third game. And what was really demoralizing about that to me is that I had a draw and a loss against two players who were way underrated compared to my rating. And so it just generated a lot of self-doubt and frustration. And I don't think I've ever had such an emotionally challenging experience like that because this time I had been doing chess seriously for the past couple of years. So I had much higher expectations on myself. And I guess uh, I'm saying all this just to kind of get your take on on dealing with that. Because I think anybody who's been in chess long enough like yourself has been there. And um, I think your advice of of having someone on the outside to reach out to is really critical. Um, But yeah, I, I find that the like when you start doubting yourself because of the losses, that, that that's the most maybe challenging thing. W- what do you think about that? And how do you, I mean, I don't know. I want to ask you how you deal with it. It may just come back to reaching out to somebody, but your thoughts. Yeah, I, I can say that I've never been able to to shape that. And if someone was to look in my tournament history, often if I feel that I cannot pull myself back together, I would withdraw from a tournament. Now, from a coach perspective, I I would encourage my students because I think that's a a personal failure in my own game that I should finish a tournament that I started and you're going to get more from it. Um, And it teaches better mental toughness and resilience to not withdraw. If you look at the, the, say, top players, it's I'm, I'm always impressed when watching their interviews that they'll take 
such a tough loss or two. But I mean, I, I think Aronian is a great example. Um, he's just such a positive force at, at all times. Uh, I think your personality type has a lot to do with it as well. Yeah. So, Brian, you're a coach to other chess players. Have you, and you recommended potentially having one of those people that you can reach out to be your coach. So have you been in that position for your students and, uh, you know, where you're their, their, <laughs> their resource in those tough tournaments? And if so, uh, what do you find yourself saying to them? A hundred percent. That's, that is part of the coaching package that I offer that I've, I've had too many times where a player calls me up extremely upset after a bad game in round one or two. And we have to objectively look at the, the situation. Was it me? Was it my opponent? Was it an outside factor? COVID, for instance, really messed up ratings to go back to your point. And a lot of players were grossly underrated and still are. And from rating systems being completely out of whack, depending upon where you're at in the country or where you're at worldwide, you, you have to objectively look like, okay, what's this guy's uh, account name? And if he's 500 points higher than me in every category on Lee Chess or Chess.com, <laughs> he's good. <laughs> and <laughs> right. he just hasn't played in over-the-board tournaments. And you had the misfortune of getting paired with him while his rating is, is on the ascent his or her rating. Um, so I, I think you, you can work to make a lot of rationalizations on why it happened. Was it something you did or was it an outside factor? If it's something you did, you got to work on correcting that ASAP for the next game. And if it's outside factors, I think you can let the, the tension and pressure you're putting on yourself go a lot better. If you can equate it to, well, that was just bad luck. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I find that's really true. Um, in fact, I had that discussion on Twitter. Um, and one, and, um, uh, Dan Heisman, uh, one of my coaches said that, that, you know, he's like, look, look, there's a lot of people underrated, <laughs> um, especially with adults, but uh, a lot of people underrated right now. And he's like, D don't freak out. That's, that's probably what happened, you know, in your situation. Uh, you know, it doesn't mean that you suddenly played, you know, 500 points lower than what was expected of you. Um, and, and I think just understanding that there was probably an external factor at play, like I'm, I'm reluctant to make excuses and I think we all should be, mm. but I think when you can see that situation, that that may be the situation, uh, that it really, it really alleviated a lot for me. It's like, Oh, okay. I'm not, <laughs> right. I'm not, I'm not playing terribly. It was just a, a, a sort of a mismatch of ratings here. And you can find yourself emotionally spiraling in that situation. If you lose to uh, say a much lower rated player that you start questioning, well, why am I doing this? Why have I been putting in such work? I mean, I even find myself at the board if my mind drifts and it's, it's, it's the same kind of concept that when you're reading a book, and then you find yourself going, what did I just read for the past page? You, you were going through the motions, but you weren't there uh, cognitively. Um, I've, I've had students tell me, well, Mr. Tillis, you, you, look, you look upset when you play <laughs> or you look angry because I am angry at myself that I'm not able to maintain the focus. And I'm, I have a, a negative internal dialogue, which definitely isn't healthy and I don't recommend. But I'm like, well, if, if you spent... February will be 20 years of my life I've been playing chess. 
if you can't focus right now when it counts, why are you playing? And that my body language changes. I look frustrated and I'm zoning in. That's what gets me there when I'm in competition. I guess playing competitive sports growing up, I think I kind of developed that mentality. But you've, you've got to give yourself every competitive advantage and everyone's journey is different. You've got to zone in and get yourself focused, whatever it takes. Yeah. Great advice. Love it. I just kind of wanted to finish with just you personally, Brian, going forward in in your chess journey. Are there any new courses on the horizon for you that we can look forward to? I am frantically trying to put finishing touches on my English course. It's going to be my first white repertoire on Chessable. Um, I have no tentative date on that. And I've got uh, a project that I'm working on with a co-author that to describe it as, say, predecessors for the Women's World Champions. Oh, that's amazing. That's great. I'm I'm very excited about that project. It's definitely a passion project. Uh, Those are the two big ones on the horizon, and I'm hoping to have them both finished by the end of the year. And it's definitely projects like that that are taking my time that, you know, six to eight hours a day. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And do you have any uh, norm tournaments on the horizon for yourself? I do not at the moment because I, I feel like I need to really establish a set routine for myself. And I've got to be confident to the point that when I register for one of those tournaments, I know I'm in the top three, not the bottom three. And that's that's going to take a lot of work because, I mean, especially I'm competing with players half my age. So that's a lot of physical as well as mental conditioning is going to go into that. And I'm going to need to play a lot of tournaments to work out the kinks. I don't ha- have a focus on rating right now at all. I have a focus on getting myself to peak performance. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, well, I think that's like refreshing to hear for, um, people listening because, uh, you know, we don't always have everything aligned perfectly the way we would want to at in a, in a given moment in our lives. And so I think it's refreshing to hear from someone at your level that, you know, even you need to kind of take a moment sometimes to recalibrate, reset, and then figure out how to go forward. So I appreciate that. Yeah, I think that pretty much wraps us up for today, Brian. Um, I just want to say thank you so much for being on the show. It's always great having you. Uh, I love hearing your wisdom. And I think it applies to everyone listening, um, regardless of their rating level. And yeah, it's just, uh, it's always a great conversation with you, Brian. So I really appreciate, appreciate you being here today. Oh, I love coming on. I I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, definitely look forward to your new courses. Uh, Both sound exciting. I'm excited that there will be a white repertoire for you on Chessable as well soon. That's really cool. And then the uh, collection of games from, from, um, you know, women champions sounds amazing as well. So those are two great things to look forward to. And uh, yeah, wishing you all luck on everything, Uh, your, your course projects and your, you know, your, your title journey as well. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of my business, Adult Chess Academy. And that has a website with the same name if you want to look for it. You can also find me being way too active on Twitter by searching my username, Lona underscore chess. See you next week.